Psalm 34:18 says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I've shared those words with you uh, before from this platform. Um, for some of you, I've shared them across the dining room table or in your living room, uh, maybe in a hospital room where we were gathered together. Um, I share them again and again and again because of how deeply meaningful and impactful I believe they are. Uh, those words speak to a God who not only made us and formed us, but a God who doesn't run away when our hearts ache, but a God who draws close. Uh, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, whether online or in this room, um, our church has gone through a particularly uh, difficult season of, of grief uh, brought on by uh, multiple deaths within our church family that have been so impactful to us. And so my hope this morning as we have a conversation about grief is that um, you're helped uh, in a very real way uh, in the midst of whatever suffering and grief you're going through. And if you're not experiencing grief right now, uh, my hope is that you'll listen with ears wide open uh, because this can be preparatory for you. Um, because at some point, uh, grief and loss is gonna come knocking on your door and often it's not expected or anticipated. And I think the things that we will learn today and discover together can help us, whether we're experiencing grief now or in the grief uh, that is to come. Uh, we've invited Patrick Rieke uh, to come. Patrick helped kind of be the keynote for our CARE conference back in 2019. Patrick is the director of uh, chaplaincy and volunteer services at Parkview Health in Fort Wayne, a, a large medical um, system there. He's chaired the ethics committee there before. Uh, he has co-authored a book with his wife on infant loss called No Matter How Small, Understanding Miscarriage and Stillbirth. He's written two other books um, that help point the way in darkness, uh, Finding Meaning in Suffering, 101 Ways to Find Meaning in Suffering, and then How to Talk with Sick, Dying, and Grieving People When There Are No Magic Words. Um, I share all of that with you, uh, not because Patrick asks me to name his accolades, but I know that some of you in the room and some of you watching online, you will not listen unless you know the person you're listening to uh, knows what they're talking about and has some experience in that. And so Patrick comes having not only studied and helped, but walked the road of grief. Uh, but I also want you to know that um, I listen to Patrick not because of all the incredible things that he has done and written but because Patrick's a fellow disciple who's striving to honor God and follow him with his life. Uh, we've shared some of the same road together. Uh, we went to college together, our undergraduate at Johnson Bible College. Uh, one of my best friends in high school, Kristen, uh, became his very best friend and spouse. And so we have some things that we've shared in life together and uh, I'm just deeply thankful for him. And so um, would you please welcome Patrick here. So it's always dangerous to clap for somebody before they've said anything, because you never know um, how it's going to turn out, right? So. <laughs> we, we have a lot of ground to cover um, this morning, and I'm going to be honest, probably it's not going to be enough time uh, for, for you, uh, but we're going to try to cover a lot of things, and uh, so we're not going to do a bunch of um, fun stories about how we got to know each other and stuff at the beginning. We're just going to jump right in and along the way, ask some of the questions that you've submitted this week. And uh, quite honestly, many of the questions that I ask, if they weren't submitted this week, 
uh, come from the questions that you or others like you have asked me over time. Um, and so we're just going to jump right in. When we think about grief, Patrick, um, one of the questions that I get asked is, how do I know if I'm grieving? How, how do I know uh, that, I'm, that I am grieving or grieving well when I experience a loss? So would you define grief for us and what qualifies as grief? So first, let me just say to those of you who've had some of these losses and experiences, I'm sorry uh, for what you're going through. And as Craig on the phone this week, as we talked about some of the things that your church has faced and he listed one thing after another, um, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's um, the sort of thing, as he said, we often can't or don't prepare for um, until it's right there and it's in our laps. So um, as far as what is grief and how do I know if I'm grieving, you know, probably like a lot of you this morning, I looked at the forecast and was disappointed to see 100% chance of rain today and tomorrow. And so we've got these flash flood warnings and we're going to be traveling back to Fort Wayne later today. And so we're looking at what the weather is going to be like. Um, I would say that's a little bit like what, what you just said, Craig, of we have a 100% chance of experiencing grief in life. It's not the exception it is the rule. We will experience grief. We'll move in and out of those places. Hopefully we spend less time there than more, but we will spend at least some time there. Um, but we get, we get in this place where when we think about grief, um, we, we mix it together with things like mental health and depression, and certainly there's connections there, but we, we don't all experience depression. We do all experience grief. And grief is actually a healthy, normal um, experience to have. And so we know we're grieving when, very simply, we've lost something. And this is why sometimes you have that, maybe that second cousin you haven't talked to in 20 years and they die, and you're, you may not shed any tears over that, right? Because they weren't a part of your life ongoingly. You didn't come home to them every day. Um, you didn't, hadn't talked with them. Maybe you didn't even know where they lived. And so there's not really something in your life that's suddenly missing. But if it's somebody that's close, or even, even something that feels like it should be less important, like say you've got a pet that dies, and, but that pet is a part of your daily life. Um, now, I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've had to say goodbye to a pet recently, because we'll, we'll make sure we'll have to pass the Kleenex around for that part too. But you know that, that you cry over things that may seem like, well, my cat's not important as my cousin, right? Although some of you would probably say, absolutely, my cat is more important than, you know, most of my family members and 99% of the human race, you know, that sort of thing. But you would intrinsically say people are more important than my pets, and yet you're going to cry when your pet dies, right? Um, we cry and we feel grief when it's something that we have lost. And it's not something to be avoided. Grief isn't something to be turned away from. It's something to recognize I, I've lost something. You know, you ramp that all the way up into when I started working at the hospital several years ago, and you watch when young people die. And of course, we're all heartbroken when you see um, maybe it's a, it's a young couple and they've just been together a short time and one of, the, one of the spouses dies. But as I started to watch and you see a couple has been married for 50 years and one of them dies, they're so integrated into each other's lives, even more so than that. Even though it's, it's of course, it's very tragic to see a 20-something or a 30-something die, they're so integrated into each other's lives that when that is pulled apart, they've lost so much. They've lost so much of who they are. You know, I know we're gonna talk a little bit about miscarriage and stillbirth, but for a mom, 
that baby is literally a part of her body. Mm -hmm. It's literally a part of her life. And moms know that doesn't end just when the baby's born, right? That baby remains a part of you forever. And so those experiences of losing babies or even losing children when they're older, you know, so grief is just, we know we're experiencing grief when we've really lost something. Um, and so you might see a news story about a tragic, violent killing and not feeling grief because you don't know that person. That's still tragic. You recognize that's traumatic and somebody is in deep grief over that, but it's not your loss. And that's okay. It's okay to not feel that in the same way as you would feel if it was somebody in your life. Well, that provokes a, a question that is not on our notes, and I figured this would happen. Um, uh, but, but one of the things that I've heard, even from some of the people in this room, is that when they are grieving um, a very significant loss, I mean, a spouse, a parent, uh, they will have people come to them and say, um, you know, I don't think you've really grieved yet. Like, can you speak to that? Like, I, mean, I think because that person wants to know, well, I think I'm grieving, but like, how, how would yeah. you point them? Yeah, so that perhaps what's being said there is I don't see the visible outpouring of what I think grief is supposed to look like, right? There's no should for grief. I, let me just say that like four times. There's no should for grief. What I mean when I say there's no should for grief is it, it, you, it, I can't say you should be crying more. <laughs> or you should be crying less, and that would mean you're doing better because you're crying less. Or you should be able to go back to work because that means you're healthy and you're strong and you're being able to move on. Or you should have a hard time going back to work because if you don't have a hard time going back to work, then that means you're not really feeling it. We've got to remove the shoulds from grief. Mm -hmm. Different people respond in different ways. Is it okay to be joyful at a funeral? 100%. Is it okay to be on the ground crying and, and so despondent that you can't really function at the funeral? 100%. Both of those things are appropriate. And so sometimes I think when we say, we don't think you're grieving rightly, we have these sets of shoulds in our minds. So it's one thing to push that on another person. It's another thing for me to push that on myself. Now, this won't, will come as a surprise, I'm sure, but I'm a white guy. In, in the Midwest, educated, pastoral type. So what, what, might, what might I say about how I should grieve? I shouldn't cry, right? I should be strong. I should know that, you know, when my friend dies, or as you know, Craig, our father, my father-in-law, Chris's dad died this year, it would be easy for me to say, I should not grieve without hope. I should know he's with Jesus, and so I should rejoice, right? Um, that's harmful to me. If, if I put that should on myself and say, I should be grieving this way or I should be happy and rejoicing for him, that's not fair because I miss him. He's not here, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's not really fair. To, it's one thing to do it to another person, but it's, I think it's really harmful when we do it to ourselves. And we say that I, I'm doing it wrongly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's not really a wrong response. Now, if we get into depression, suicidal ideation, we're talking about something totally differently. Intervention needs to happen. You need to have hope. You need to reach out to someone. Um, but when you're just feeling the feelings of sadness or joy, there's, there's no should. Yeah. I, what came to mind as you were even saying that is I think, um, I don't remember we talked about this on Tuesday or not, but Jesus, uh, John chapter 11, uh, here is the Savior of the world, fully God Fully, fully man, and it's really hard for us to reconcile those two things. I'm not even sure we're supposed to. 
Um, but he comes to Mary and Martha, his dear friends, and they've just lost their brother Lazarus. And Jesus, in just a few verses, which we don't know how much time that is, is gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. And so whether he knew that or not in that moment, he still comes into that scene where his friend has died, the brother to his dear friends has died, and what does he do with them? He weeps. And so if Jesus can weep in grief, um, I think it's great to give ourselves permission um, yeah, to, I, to grieve. I think there's so many pieces we could take away from that story. One is just that he, he tries. He embraces, you know, for the men in the room particularly. But I think women can struggle with this as well. Um, we, we get those masculine messages that crying is a sign of weakness. Crying is not a sign of weakness. Crying is a sign that you loved. Because if I don't love that person I die, I don't, I don't need to cry. But if I love them and now they're gone, like Jesus, I need to cry. I, I would say there's one other thing I want to piggyback off that story because, of course, it's really core to, to talking about this topic. Jesus walks in and, and is in the middle of the grief. As you said, he embraces the sisters. He cries with them. We see the Pharisees on the outside. They, they stand a little bit at a distance. Now, they're there mourning, too. But they take that morning hat off real quick to be judgmental and to, be, and to assess how people are doing and what people should have done. Now, some of them say, see how much he loved him. Now, that, that, that person is joining in with the experience of grief. See how much, so we're seeing, we're, we're opening our eyes to what's going on here. See how much he loved him. And then other Pharisees say, didn't this guy heal blind people? Couldn't he, couldn't he kept this man from dying? And so they're assessing the situation. Whenever we find ourselves assessing someone's grief response, we want to be careful. When we're, because assessing is just another word for judging, right? Um, we're judging how they're grieving. We, we're on dangerous ground. We're not necessarily helping them when all of a sudden we think we need to tell them what they should have done. Yeah, that's really good. Um, you mentioned a little bit in your comments a few moments ago uh, of the word avoidance. Uh, our culture um, in, in the Midwest, or if it's maybe the American culture, we, we kind of grew up in this place where we avoid grief and death. Conversations about it, exposure to it. And so would you speak a little bit to the importance of normalizing death and grief? Yeah, absolutely. So we joked about this on the phone on Tuesday that um, I have the opportunity sometimes to speak to one of, our, one of the classes from our alma mater and talk on these topics. It's a senior level ministry class. So before they get launched out there into the ministry world where people are, are dying and grieving, um, I get this opportunity for 90 minutes to talk with them. And used to be in person, of course, now everything's on, on the computer. Uh, but one time when we were in person, we're talking about grief and you know facing that, realizing it's a part of everyday life, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of it, I opened it up for comments and questions. And there was this young man senior ministry student He's from East Tennessee, big East Tennessee and big, thick neck, you know, big, strong boy. He just says, this is depressing. <laughs> and I said, it, it, is, it is depressing. But you know what? It's even more depressing to not talk about it. Because you, as you said, Craig, it's going to come into our lives. And if we haven't started to integrate it a little bit um, and to think about it, you know, we've, it's just Atul Gawande in his book, um, Being Mortal, he says, in America, we've medicalized death. Now, I have to raise my hand as part of the guilty party. I'm a part of a huge health care system. But we've medicalized death. Something like 60% of people, when they die, they die at a hospital or a facility. Now, if I had to 
poll the audience today and say, how many of you, if you had to choose where you were gonna die, would choose to die in a hospital? Less than 60% of you, I guarantee, would say, that's where I, I'd love to die in an ICU that I've never laid eyes on. Um, but that's what most people do. And so we scroll away the experience of death and dying and sickness into a building that people have to like get permission to go into, especially right now, right? You can't even necessarily go in and watch it. And then we bring them out after they've died into a different facility that no one ever goes to, where they're literally locked away. Um, we don't necessarily have much an opportunity to interact with them after they've died until they've been made presentable, right? Mm. Um, and there's, there's a strength to that, but it's a, we have to recognize this is a cultural phenomenon that's not the case everywhere in the world. And so they, they have chemicals, you know, or they're, or they're laid out with their, the clothes that they want. And there's ways to do that beautifully, um, but it, all of this keeps, keeps death at an arm's distance for us. On the other hand, we watch our media, and um, when you watch a movie, I watched John Wick, the original John Wick, for the first time the other day. Do not recommend. <laughs> Do not recommend that one. Um, people dying the whole time. <laughs> it's it's one, one, him, him murdering one person after another, after another, after another, after another. And so it's this weird juxtaposition of our movies and our entertainment. You know, I mean, something as simple as Fortnite, you know, which is this pretty innocuous game that we're playing is all about what? Killing people, right? People being dead and respawning and all of that. So we have like this weird fixation in our media and entertainment. And yet, like you said, in our daily lives, we have this avoidance of it. So I think one way to integrate um, these conversations into our life is to take our kids to funerals and to not protect our children. Sometimes we have that mentality, let's protect the kids. Now, if it's a really toxic family funeral, you might protect it from the toxicity of the family, uh, but don't protect them from the experience of death. Talk with them about it. When, when grandma's getting close to the end, um, don't just wait and hope that they're gonna be okay. You know, have that conversation with them. Bring it into that normal everyday with the kids. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful. I was gonna ask you for a practical tip, and that's one that I was going to offer, because I know in our experience, and you and I have talked about this, um, Audrey and I would actually be criticized early on in ministry because our boys are three, four, five years old and they're with us uh, in, in the line for a viewing or they're there with us at the, the, the funeral and, and they're like, why are you letting your kids be exposed to this? And I would just tell people because this is part of our experience in this world and I am so thankful for it now and I don't know what they would say, um, but I think it's been helpful for them um, because I know that when a huge loss hits our boys, um, it won't be the first time that they've been in a funeral or in a viewing line. And I would just offer that to you. If, if for some reason the first experience you had, I wanna offer some grace here uh, with your child was at a significant loss, don't beat yourself up over that, but just keep trying to normalize that death uh, is, is a part of life. Um, one of the things you said that you think we can do to help embrace grief the other day was reading the gospels differently. Will you, will you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's not something we talk about much that Jesus was sort of obsessed with death. You read the Gospels. If you read it through this lens, I've seen how often he talks about his death. He talks about it all the time. In fact, in the NIV study Bible, there's a heading that says, Jesus again predicts his death. And so Jesus is, is saying it so repetitively that even the headings are identifying he's talking about it again. At one point, and you know the story, especially I'm sure you know the phrase that comes out of this story, Jesus is saying, at some point, this is gonna happen to me. 
you know, at some point soon, I'm, I'm going I'm to be killed. And Peter says, may that never happen to you. Basically says, I, I can imagine Peter pulling out the sword and be like, ain't, ain't no way. That's going to happen to you, Jesus. And that is when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And we've, we've made that into a theology of, oh, he knew, you know, he needed to die to atone the world. I think Jesus knew we just needed to talk about death. We needed to talk about that this is the end for each of us. And when Peter basically says, we're not going to talk about that. In fact, we're not going to ever let that, I'm not sure what Peter's end game was. Like, Jesus was going to at least die of old age at some point in time. So I'm not sure how far he was going to carry the whole thing out. But basically, when Peter says, let's not talk about death and dying, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I, thinking of Peter, I think of the disciples. And uh, one of the things I was touched by this week is I was kind of trying to read into what the scriptures say about grief and sorrow and, and those types of things. Is there's, a, there's a word that's used for grief. Uh, Paul uses it in the famous 1 Thessalonians 4 passage about not grieving as those who have no hope. That exact same word is the word that Matthew uses, um, and he tells us Jesus said it. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, he says his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow, uh, even to the point of death, and he invited them to come and pray with him. That word sorrow is grief, and so Jesus, again, is looking to these same disciples like he did Peter, and he's like, guys, um, I'm already grieving what's about to happen. I need you to stay and watch with me. And so, again, it's normalizing that that Jesus embraced grief. And I love reading the gospels with an eye towards not only victory, but, but, but death. Because the, the, the death actually, it doesn't minimize the victory, it ends up maximizing the victory, right? You don't know what you victorious over until you know what that is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I think um, you know, Jesus' integration of those conversations into his life is something that we can learn from. Um, you know, even, we do read it as victory, right? We, we, we read the entire gospel as though it's a preamble for his resurrection and victory. I'm not sure that Jesus looked at his 33 years here as just biding his time until he could be raised from the dead. In fact, I'm not sure that he viewed himself as, well, I know from his words, he didn't view himself as coming here to be raised from the dead. What does he say? I came here to die. And that, the central fact of the Christian faith actually isn't the resurrection. As, as important as the resurrection is, the central fact is the cross. You know, we celebrate, we just celebrated the, the cross with, with communion. It's what everything points towards. Um, you know, I think we've, and we'll talk, I think, more in just a little bit about maybe the way that we've tried to bypass some of those things of grief. But we don't get to go around the valley of the shadow of death. We don't get to go by the cross to get to the empty tomb. We have to go to the cross. We go through the valley, and that's where we find that God is, is near to us. Yeah, very cool. I want to get to one of the questions that we had submitted this week because it, it kind of builds off of all this. Um, one of the questions that, that someone in our church submitted was this. Uh, when it comes to grief, uh, the heaviness of it, will it ever end? Mm. I just appreciate the raw simplicity of that. And so how would you speak to that person who feels like maybe grief's never going to end? Yeah, so let's sit with that question for a minute because that's, a, as you said, that's a very raw question. Will it ever end? I think we can turn that into the prayers that are prayed so often in the scriptures. 
And if you read, if you pray the Psalms, um, at least 15 times you're gonna pray the phrase, how long, O Lord? How long? Jesus said it too. You know, as he's getting frustrated with the people not understanding his message and just wanting another miracle and more food and that sort of thing, he says, how long? How long am I gonna have to put up with this? You know, this is, this is not an unchristian feeling. This is a very biblical prayer. So this question is actually not something to turn away from. You know, will it ever end? How long will this continue to go on? This is something to hold close. A word that, that has escaped a lot of our vocabularies and a word that has probably escaped many of our, our religious experiences is the word lament. To lament is to honor that something's broken. We live in a broken world. So lamenting says, this is not the way this is supposed to go. You know, if there's anyone that we can lament for, it's people whose, children's, whose, whose children died, right? When you experience stillbirth or miscarriage or the death of a child or just the death of, of anyone who's young, that feeling of this is not the right order of things. How long are we gonna have to tolerate this? Um, it, instead of turning away from that question, or feeling ashamed, or feeling as though I'm not strong in my faith because I'm questioning how long am I gonna have to put up with this, to actually say, I walk in the shadow of spiritual giants, including Jesus himself, when I say, how long? You know, how long, O oh Lord, am I gonna have to endure this? So I would say, so that spiritually, practically, um, it's not true that all things get better with time. It's just not. All things change with time. And if you're engaged, if you're going ahead and going through that valley, I believe you can come to a different point of how you experience that grief. Um, but just the passage of time, just because it's been six months or 12 months or 10 years or 40 years, does not automatically mean anything about how you've dealt with grief. You know, as we've started to talk more about miscarriage and stillbirth, the younger generation, I would say the 20s and 30s, um, do such a better job of being open and sharing about this will run into women who, who lost a baby 40 years ago. And the cultural message at that time was even more so, um, don't, you know, just keep soldiering on. There's nobody to really talk to about this. These things happen. At least you aren't too attached. You've <laughs> got to keep up for the family, you know, those sorts of things. And so you find that women who had losses three and four decades ago are still, still have almost that fresh grief because they've, They've been pressured by the, the societal norms to not really engage in that, to not really walk through that valley. So time matters, but it doesn't, it doesn't heal all wounds. Wow. Would you, um, I'm thinking about, um, again, this, this person who's maybe a follower of Jesus that um, doesn't see, like, the, the grief is just so oppressive and is it going to end? Um, is there a way that you think disciples of Jesus grieve differently? I mean, I'm thinking about the words of, of Paul, the Thessalonians, we don't grieve as those who have no hope, and he goes on to mention because of what Jesus has done. And so what are the similarities, I guess, this is a huge question, I'm not even saying it well. Um, what are the similarities, I would say, between someone, grief for all people, disciples of Jesus and, and people who aren't yet disciples of Jesus, and what can be different for, what could be different for a disciple that, in their grief? Yeah. I think it's actually a really dangerous philosophy that we get to experience grief 
innately in a different way because we're Christians, as though we have a shield. We don't get a shield. We get a Savior. That Savior doesn't shield very often. Often he walks with through. He doesn't shield from. And so I don't know about you, but as a parent, I have prayed shield prayers a lot for my kids. Protect them from this, protect them from that. Fairly ineffective prayers for the most part, right? I mean, that kids still go through stuff. Um, but changing that, pivoting that to be with them as they go through that. You know, it, it's, it is a belief, and I can only speak from my personal experience, is a belief that when Christians are at the bedside of someone who's dying, that they somehow respond, I don't know, better, whatever better means in that situation. Um, having been at lots and lots of bedsides, so the, the time that I've been at Parkview, we've, uh, my team has overseen 10,000 deaths. Now, I haven't been in 10,000 rooms, but our team together has overseen um, and been there for families 10,000 times for death over the last eight and a half years. I can't tell you that there's a huge difference because death hits at the soul level. Whether you're a believer, whether you're not a believer, I have a very good friend who's one of the, a man of faith that I respect beyond myself. He's an ordained pastor, he's highly educated. I was there the moment his wife died. He's our, he's our age, younger kids. Was he not going to cry because he was Harvard educated with a divinity degree? That wasn't a shield for him. Now, it provided care for him. You know, Jesus didn't shield him from that, but when he went through it, he was cared for. Mm. He was seen in that moment. 12 hours before she died, he and I sat in my office and he talked about how God had led them to this point and how God was working in their relationship. And I asked him a really, a really horrible question. I said, if she dies tomorrow morning, having no idea that was what was gonna happen, is there anything that you've left unsaid? That's a very good question for all of us all the time. If that person that you care about is gone tomorrow, you know, Jesus didn't waste time, did he? I mean, he's, a, he's at, the, at the upper room knowing like, okay, this is it. And he's like, one of you is gonna betray me. <laughs> I'm just telling you, um, this is the way you gotta live. You gotta love each other. Now I'm gonna get down on my knees and I'm gonna wash your feet. I've set this example for you. When I, like he's taking the opportunity, right, to speak into those people. And we sometimes forget and pretend like we're gonna go on forever, where if we follow Jesus' example, we're taking the most of those opportunities. Thank you, man. I wanna dial in on a couple specific types of, of death and loss here for a few moments. Um, all death affects us. Um, I don't know if it's fair, you can correct me. I'm not sure every death can be unique and there's different forms that seem to carry a different weight to them. And so uh, a couple that I wanted to have you speak into, uh, one is infant loss. Um, you've already mentioned that a couple times from here. Um, again, uh, Patrick and Kristen have shared their heart in this um, book, no matter how small. And I'll share with you about how to get that a little bit more later on. But would you just speak to um, those mothers and fathers, grandparents maybe here who have experienced uh, the death of a child or grandchild? Like, what, what would you share with them? Um, you know, Chris and I were talking about this on the ride over this morning. And I think the first thing I want to say is you're not alone. Miscarriage is, as you probably know, extremely um, 
way too common. Um, I think that's another place where we could say, how long, you know, how long, oh Lord, is this going to be a continued experience of so many women? Um, the other thing I would say is that your baby matters as much as anybody's baby, whether their baby was 1, 10, 55, 82. Um, your baby is a person. Your baby is your baby. Your baby represented your hopes, your plans. Now more than ever, and you know, um, we connect to these apps and we connect to this information and we have so much more science than we've ever had before. Even from when our kids were born, there's so much more now you can know from a blood test really early on what the gender of the baby is, you know, that sort of thing. You, you, you can connect in all these different ways. And so that means that even if mom's only six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks pregnant, she may be very much attached and I use that word in a very positive way. Because guess what? Baby is attached, literally. And so mom becomes emotionally attached, and she is biologically created by God to become attached. And so when that baby is, is no longer part of her life, of course she's grieving. Of course there's something that's missing there. And you don't have to walk that path alone. Um, you know, I would say there's, there's three, and I think we're going to talk about at least one of the others. There's three most taboo topics around death. One is when a person dies by violence. Um, so if you have a friend who's lost a, a loved one to violence, just know people probably aren't talking to them about it. Um, one is death by suicide, and I think we're going to talk about that in a moment. Um, but I think third still, and hopefully falling down in the rankings right now because I think our culture is changing, but third is miscarriage and stillbirth. So you can feel as a parent, as a mom, or even as a dad, unseen. Um, but there are so many communities. You know, the, the book is part of what we've intended to do there is to make you feel like you're not alone, to realize that you're not alone. And there's so many online communities, support groups, women who have had the experience too. Now, not everybody's going to have the bandwidth to have that conversation with you. But if that's been your experience or the experience of someone close to you, I think the, the fundamental message is you're not alone. Hmm. Perfect. And I know that uh, for those of you that have experienced that in the room or online, you want Patrick to talk longer about that. And so <laughs> uh, maybe there's a way we can figure this out in the future to dedicate some more time to that. Um, the other death, and you mentioned it, that I wanted you to speak to was, was suicide. And again, we won't have as much time, but we did have a question submitted this week related to suicide. And um, it's a question I've been asked a bunch, uh, but instead of me answering it, I'm gonna let you answer it. Uh, what does scripture say about someone who seems to be a devout believer, uh, but commits suicide? Do they still go to heaven? Yeah, I think it's really hard to find a specific scripture. So I'm gonna relate a story that's a very apocryphal story, but I think speaks, it speaks to me and it's spoken in some of these situations we've been in the hospital. And the story goes like this that the Apostle Peter is at the pearly gates and he's checking in people as they come into heaven. And so he's got you know, a big register there, a census that he's, he's taken as people come in. Then his brother Andrew is in the city of gold and he's counting everybody that's there, kind of making sure that the numbers match up. And he keeps coming back to Peter and they compare their two lists. And Andrew's list of who's inside is consistently longer than the list of people that Peter's let in through the pearly gates. So they do an audit, you know, like, like you do, and try to check all the numbers and check their methodology and see how is Andrew counting the people, how is Peter counting the people, um, you know, check the, the perimeter of the city. But they keep coming back with the list that Andrew has is so much longer than the list that Peter has of people that have come in through the pearly gate. 
one night, Andrew's just really troubled, and he's um, up in the middle of the night. I don't know if there's not actually night in heaven, but it, that's why I said it's an apocryphal story. So he's up in the middle of the night, and he's wandering around uh, the heavenly city, and he, and he discovers the reason why they have the discrepancy. And so the next morning, he finds Peter at the pearly gate. He said, I finally figured out our, the discrepancy, why we have a discrepancy. He says, it's Jesus. He's sneaking people in over the wall. <laughs> one thing that we know when someone dies is that God is gracious. We know that Jesus tends to widen the circle further than we thought it could be widened. We know that his heart is to embrace, not to exclude. You know, it's interesting, the, the Catholic Church has canonized so many saints over the year and said, um, for sure, these people are in heaven. You know what they've never done? They've never said in all their history, in all their rules and religion, they've never said for sure that person's in hell, never. Now they have teachings that might lead people to believe that, but they've never identified a person and they never even said Judas is in hell. And I think that's founded on that grace of God. The one thing we know about God more than anything else is that he's open-armed, that he's gracious. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us to remember, and we are, we're going to have to move fast through some things okay. because we knew this was going to happen. We're going to lose time <laughs> really fast. But um, one of the things that gets said to me in this conversation from people is, um, but a person who takes their own life um, hasn't had a chance to ask for forgiveness. Mm. And don't believe that lie um, because yeah. uh, I'm, I'm gonna guess that for every one of us in this room and everyone watching online, there are a number of things that you have done uh, that you've never asked forgiveness <laughs> for and that we're leaning into God's grace on those things as well. I don't even think that's Jesus' intent is that for every single sin, you confess every single detail. Um, but we also have to understand that anyone who gets to the place where for them, ending their life is the only way out. There are so many factors that go into that. And our first response should not be one of judgment, but one of compassion uh, to see what that hurt is. And, and so I have preached um, multiple funerals for people who have um, committed suicide. And um, it is one of the hardest things to do. But I, I do think that we can um, help people see that it's not our place to say who's in heaven I think we look at the fruit in keeping with righteousness that Jesus talks about. We, that's what we, we, we want. We want to be people who love people well and extend kindness and good people who love people well, who follow Jesus, have been in such despair and despondence that they've ended their life. Um, and it doesn't mean that they don't get to go uh, to heaven one day. Um, I would recommend, again, another book on that. I don't know if you've seen this even, Patrick, Finding Your Way After the Suicide mm-hmm. of Someone You Love. Uh, it's a book that's been helpful to me because I have dear friends that have taken their own life. Uh, and um, it's been helpful for others that I've, I've, I've walked that journey with. Let's spend our final moments, um, an abrupt transition. Uh, how do we help those in the room who are trying to help and come alongside others who are grieving? Um, you have um, written some things about what not to say and what to say, and in fact, you've been given today, if you didn't get one there more in the lobby, uh, a PDF about what not to say, and I kind of wanted to start there. If you had to pick, let's just pick one off, yeah. off your list. Do you remember your list? Slightly. <laughs> let's just pick <laughs> one off your list that you think that we need to hear about what not to say yeah. to someone in grief. So God has a plan. There's a reason why these are highlighted. It's because we've actually said them, right? I wouldn't highlight things that we didn't have the propensity to say and say, don't say those things if nobody's ever said them. We've all said God has a plan to somebody who's struggling or somebody who's in grief. We've all said, I've said it, you've said it. Um, 
why do I say we shouldn't say that one? And that's because um, if, if I were to say, well, somebody died and there was a plan for them to die, that sounds a little bit sick, right? Um, if I look at a family whose babies just died and I say God has a plan, my question as the parent might be, God's plan was to kill my baby? Like this, this is not in keeping with the picture of who I think God actually is. Um, does God have plans? Yes. Is God in control? Mm, somewhat. Um, but he also gives us lots of opportunity to do other things and things happen in the world. And so I think sometimes when we stick with this message, we become like those Pharisees that stay on the outside and giving an assessment. God has a plan. This is my assessment of your situation. God has a plan. He's going he's gonna to see this through. He's going to give you victory instead of joining in with them and stepping inside and supporting them. So give us an alternative. What's something we should yeah. say? So I'll tell you, to say. one of our chaplains, um, uh, he's a Lutheran pastor um, by his background. He's a chaplain at Parkview now and just had an experience with a family that Kristen served um, at the hospital and, and their NICU baby, um, born you know, under, under a pound, I mean, just a tiny little baby. Didn't have a good outlook, obviously, from the very beginning. Uh, when the baby was born, the dad's um, overriding message was, God's got a plan. He's going to see this through. Everything's going to be okay. God ordained this time. Eight days later, the baby died. And our chaplain came back, and, and the dad was kind of trying to, he was trying to hang on to that message because that was the message he'd been given in his upbringing. God has a plan, and he's going to see these things through. And so he's trying to hold on to this. And then he says to our chaplain, but this really sucks. <laughs> and our chaplain um, baptized our baby because that was the only baptism that baby was ever going to experience. Wasn't going to get to choose immersion for, for himself later in life. Um, baptized the baby. Came back later after the baby was dead. And the family's broken. Which phrase of the dads do you think was most helpful at that point? God has a plan or this really sucks? This really sucks. This is, this is horrible. Um, to sit with that family as, as the chaplain at the hospital and for Brian to say, this, this is horrible. To identify it, to associate with it. That's where Jesus is stepping into Mary and Martha, right? Instead of on the outside assessing, oh, God's got a plan. It's all going to be okay. I'm going to raise him from the dead. He steps into it. Um, it's a difference between shifting and supporting. Sometimes we shift. We shift away from that person into a, a pivot point, to a theology, to a belief, to uh, maybe an end game, um, instead of going in and supporting that person. And so having that message of, um, this is wrong. When a baby dies, that, that's wrong. It's not the way that the world's supposed to go. And identifying that wrongness with them instead of um, sort of bypassing it with the message of God has a plan. Yeah. Patrick has other statements like this that, that are helpful to say. Because that's a question, again, I get asked a lot. It's a question I've asked myself. What's the right thing to say? Um, we're going to send those out by way of our weekly email um, later this week. And so you can have those on hand. Um, like a minute, man, is all I got left. Um, <laughs> w would you speak a final word of hope? And then um, I hope you saw it in the notes. I'd love it if you would kind of close us out by praying over us. Yeah, absolutely. So I know you've been talking about spiritual disciplines. Grief is actually, integrating your grief is a spiritual discipline, I believe. Lament is a spiritual discipline. I mean, if Psalms is the prayer book of the church, um, those prayers are often lament prayers. Psalm 102, go to that one. Um, and how long, O oh Lord, how long are you going to leave me sort of um, abandoned by you? 
So integrating lament into your prayer life is a spiritual discipline. Reading through the Gospel of Luke, um, looking at Jesus' words about death, how he talked about his own death, how he talked about eternal life. Um, Genesis, there's so many stories. Genesis is basically the story of one person's life until they die, people are sad. There's another person that comes along, they die, everybody grieves, and another person comes along. I mean, that's the entire book of Genesis. If you'll read it from that lens and watch for grief and watch for suffering, you'll see those things. Last of all, Ecclesiastes, of course. Ecclesiastes starts with meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. But here's the little known fact I didn't know until recently. The word enjoy, the book of the Bible where the word enjoy appears most often is the book of Ecclesiastes. So some of you who have, who have embraced some of the meaninglessness, embraced some of the grief, embraced the valley of the shadow of death, you know it doesn't ruin your enjoyment of this life. In fact, it informs your enjoyment of this life because we only get so long. And so we better enjoy that time while we have it. So far from being, this is depressing, you know, mm -hmm. that message, um, it can also be an invigorating message of life that Jesus embraced every moment because he knew that his time was short. You okay if I pray? Yeah, I'd love if you pray over us. Father, as we woke up this morning to 100% chance of rain, we woke up to 100% chance of some problems and grief in this life. And, uh, but we also woke up to 100% chance of you seeing us in the middle of that just as you saw the uh, Israelites as they were in exile in Egypt, and you said, I have seen your misery. May we walk away from this place, even if our problems haven't been solved or our grief hasn't, been, hasn't ended, knowing that you see us in our place of misery. God, I pray for those families who in the past month, two months, 12 months, have had to say goodbye to someone that's close to them as they feel that loss and that sense of grief that your spirit would do what your spirit does best and be a comforter, be a support for them. We pray this in Christ's name.